You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Sermon text today is from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning and uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Trust that you had a great uh, time uh, with friends, family, and ate lots of good food. Uh, like the Martins, if you're like us, uh, the pumpkin pie was barely digested before the Christmas music was turned on and the tree was up and Christmas pajamas were out of their box and uh, we had a great uh, weekend uh, celebrating Thanksgiving and getting ready for the Christmas season. Um, but before we officially jump into Advent, um, we have, have this Sunday here to consider uh, this passage before us from James chapter 5. And um, this passage is one that uh, several weeks ago, uh, Chad texted me and uh, said, hey, you're going to be in town Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, I have a passage that I, I, would, I think would be great for you to preach. I still don't know exactly what that means. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, what he also doesn't know is that that same night, we, were, we went out to dinner with some friends uh, that attend the Summit Church, which is a, a large church here in the area. And he uh, was leading his small group. And that same week, uh, the pastor at Summit, J.D. Greer, had preached from this exact passage. And so my, our friend had led small group on the passage, and his whole small group got into a big debate over this passage and what it really means. And um, so, you know, my interest was piqued and intrigued. So I listened to J.D.'s sermon on this passage, and uh, one, I was disheartened because he's a way better preacher than I am. Uh, but two, he also said this at the very start of his sermon. He says, most New Testament commentators say this is the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. So, Chad, thank you very much. Um, so, you know, that was the beginning of my sermon prep was going into the most difficult passage in the New Testament. And 
I, I did read a lot more commentaries and articles than I normally do when preparing a sermon, and I can attest that it is all over the place with this passage. Um, I don't think I found a single commentary that agreed with the commentary I had read before. And there are some reasons why this passage is difficult. First, the language that James uses in this passage, such as one who is sick, will be saved, they will be healed, all of these words have a, a large range of meaning. Um, they can mean different things in different contexts, and they're used differently throughout the scriptures. And so it's really difficult, the language is vague, to kind of understand exactly what it is that he's saying, how we should understand and interpret it. Uh, second is that the whole book of James, and also in this passage, uh, he's pretty matter-of-fact. He just kind of says things, and he doesn't give much explanation, background, doesn't give us the information that we would maybe hope for in situations like this. So we have to kind of come up with some of it ourselves. Uh, lastly, he says some things that kind of challenge our theology a bit. We'll, we'll get into this more, obviously, but you know, the prayer of faith will save the sick person. Like, it's kind of, it's challenging for us. How, how does that work? We don't often live that way or, or talk that way or even do things that way. So today will potentially be a little bit more academic than usually up front, uh, but I think it's helpful for us in trying to understand this passage, and I'm going to try to keep it, uh, you know, clipping along as best we can. But I wanted to start first with a couple of common interpretations of this passage and the challenges that I have with those, and then we'll kind of jump into how I think we can, we can hopefully read this. And I, I want to say that I am not 100% on this. So take everything with, uh, you know, your own uh, intellect and your own mind and, tr and wrestle with it yourselves and, and try your best to come to an understanding as well. Um, and I think all of the interpretations probably have some truth in them. Uh, it's just a matter of how we can best apply it. But the common interpretations to this passage, I'm going to give three. The first and most historic one is what I'm calling the Catholic interpretation. This is kind of what most of church history has read this passage as. And this is a, what I'm going to say is a sacramental healing is what this passage is talking about. Now, in the Catholic Church, sacrament, they have seven of them. They treat it as what is a special means of God's grace. And in this case, the anointing of the sick is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. It is a special means of God's grace to those who are sick. And it's most often applied to those who are very close to death um, as a way of kind of getting everything right with God before you die. Um, so a priest would come and anoint the sick, and it's kind of this way of resolving everything, making sure that your sins are really forgiven uh, before you pass on into the next life. And there are some things going for this interpretation the language that James used is often used to describe a person who is very sick, bedridden, on the verge of dying. Um, I, I also think that James does seem to have in mind here something more than simply just physical healing from a sickness. So this kind of sacramental understanding of it, I think, has some weight to it. The challenge that I have with this is that this sacrament is not spoken of anywhere else in Scripture. This anointing of the sick, 
Unlike baptism or communion, which are the sacraments that we practice at our church, Paul, Peter, John, Acts, none of them mention this anointing of the sick. And to me, it seems strange that you would have such a weighty sacrament being practiced, but only mentioned in one verse in one book of, of the New Testament. So I think there's a challenge there that it's, it's not correct to think of it as this sacramentally focused healing that is a special administration of God's grace to those who are, are on the verge of death. Uh, the second would be a charismatic interpretation of the passage. And this is focused uh, primarily on physical healing, miraculous power of God through faith that we have access to to heal all types of sickness. It is taken somewhat formulaically as like this is the process that you must go through to guarantee that God will heal you. We have probably all seen or been familiar with these faith healers who will kind of petition themselves as ones who have been specially gifted by God with large amounts of faith and you come and you get the oil put on you and prayed over and, and healing flows. Now, there are some things going for this interpretation. James does seem to make an unconditional statement that healing will come through the prayer of faith. Also, he uses the example of Elijah, which shows that prayer has the power to affect physical reality. The challenge with this, of course, is life. Healing doesn't always come. If, if this was a formula to guarantee healing, well, then, you know, there'd be a lot more people alive today. And this can lead to a, a sort of dangerous theology of the sick person then being blamed for the one having the lack of faith, that healing didn't become, come because of their faith. But it's very clear in this passage that James, the prayer of faith is the faith of the person praying, not the one who is sick. So there's a challenge there. And I, now I want to be clear here that although I, I don't think this passage is primarily about physical healing, this does not mean we shouldn't be praying for physical healing. I'm just hesitant to prescribe unilaterally from one specific verse that has many challenging components to it, this formula of, of guaranteeing God's healing to come. I don't think that there's anything specific to this that says this is what you should do if you are sick in all cases. And I don't think that this prayer of faith and this anointing of the elders that James is describing is any more effective for means of healing than all of us ordinarily coming together and praying for healing. So don't take it as we shouldn't pray for healing. I just don't think that this passage is specifically uh, advising that. Last would be the classic interpretation of this, this uh, passage. And this is uh, understanding it, what I'm calling a salvific healing. That is, this sickness is really equated to sinfulness. And the physical sickness of our body reminds us of our spiritual sickness, which then prompts us to turn to God and pray for healing. Physical healing may happen, and some, oftentimes it does, but ultimately it was really about your spiritual sickness that needed, to be, um, that needed to be dealt with. 
And then also they'll turn to, because of Christ, ultimately all, we will all be healed one day. The healing may not come right now on this, in this life, but we, will, we do look forward to a day when there is no sickness. Now, there are some uh, good things going for this uh, interpretation as well. Uh, obviously, when James says that the prayer of faith will heal the sick person, he then makes this weird turn immediately to, and his sins will be forgiven. So there definitely is something more going on than, than a physical, just physical sickness. There is, in James's imagination at least, and in, in motivating the writing of this passage, there is something about our sinfulness and the need for forgiveness that's there. The challenge that I have with this one is that we have to kind of caveat James's words so much that they essentially lose their meaning. If, if, sickness, if our sickness is not really healed, then what's the point of calling the elders? What's the point of having an anointing? The example of Elijah kind of makes no sense because he uses the example of Elijah to show that our prayers have impacts on, our, on the physical world that we live. This is not just spiritual. Also, the passage is really not eschatological in any sense. There's, James is not talking in any way about the life that is to come. He's talking about right now what is happening and what we should do. And eventually it gets, just gets to the point where you're saying, you're kind of twisting it to say, well, it's really not about physical healing that I think it's difficult to read this passage and understand, well, what, what is he talking about? And why are we going through this process if it's simply just about our, our spiritual need? Also, with all three of these interpretations, there are kind of two things that I noticed that seem to me to lead to some misunderstandings. First is they, make, they take it as a universal passage. And what I mean by this is that when you read through the commentaries, they get to this section and they're like, I don't know what James is talking about. Like, this doesn't fit with the rest of the, the letter. Uh, it just seems like James is just kind of throwing things out there and seeing what sticks. And they just see it as this detached sort of generic advice for various situations of life. So, again, the sickness is then just any sort of physical sickness, any sort of ailment. You go through this, and I think that's what gets us into these difficult understandings and interpretations. Second is they make it too personal. It's kind of about what you need to do in that given situation. If you are this, then do this. And I think this leads to misunderstandings because the entirety of the letter of James is about a community. And then we get to the end and we kind of make it personal and, and it leads to some slight misunderstandings. So I want to recast this passage in the context of James quickly for us before we walk through it. So instead of universal, I want to make it occasional. That is, James was writing to a specific people at a specific time going through specific circumstances. It was written for a specific occasion. He was not just writing a universal, this is how you be a Christian letter. And I want to make it communal. He was writing to a community that was going through particular challenges. So first, the occasion. James starts off his letter in verses 1 and 2, and he says, To the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you, whenever you experience various trials. 
So this is how he starts his letter. To the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Now, what this is referring to is back in the book of Acts, which we uh, went through last year. Um, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is persecuted and stoned, the, the Jews scattered. The Christians scattered out of Jerusalem because of that persecution. And they all, all the, the, those who had come in for the festival and experienced Pentecost and became Christians and formed this community, now because of persecution, scattered back out to the nations from which they came. So because of persecution, these people have been forced to flee back into their, the places where the gospel has not gone yet. They are these little communities who have been persecuted, who are now living outside of what they had known as the very first Christian community. And they are experiencing trials. All throughout the book of James, it is clear that these people are up against some serious trials. Now, I do think these trials, obviously he says various trials. They are, there are different types of trials, but I think it's mostly in the context of persecution. So that's the occasion. People who, who are dispersed, they have lost the leadership of the early church. James, being one of the, the founding elders of the Jerusalem church, is now writing to these little communities who have been scattered abroad, are experiencing heavy persecution, trying to encourage them and instruct them how to live. So next, the community. Ooh, James goes to town on this community throughout his letter, and I tried to give examples as you can read, perhaps read later, but to just try to summarize some of the things that were going on in this community uh, that James is writing and trying to help them uh, overcome. Um, first, they were favoring the rich and neglecting the poor. Um, James talks often about favoritism uh, um, among the rich and, and showing honor to the rich and neglecting the poor. And it, it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what he means by this, um, because in the book, it, it shows clearly that the rich people were the ones who were, a, who were actively opposing and persecuting the Christians. They were the ones who were dragging them off and throwing them into prison and bringing them before courts. So perhaps out of fear, they were trying to, you know, curry favor with them. But I think more likely it's as a means to an end. If we can get the rich people to come into our church and show them honor and they have the best seat in the house and they become part of our community, then that will lead to the, the end of our, our, our trials, our struggles, our persecution. Um, also, the community was using hateful, violent, and angry speech. James is very strong on this point that, that they are using their words to tear each other down, complaining about each other, that the tongue is uncontrollable, it's like a fire that just burns through the community and destroys everything. This wasn't just, you know, being mean. This was intentionally violent and angry and hateful speech. Uh, they were arrogant and fighting among themselves. The, James talks about wars with, amongst them, even to the extent of murder. They were constantly fighting they were constantly proud, constantly arrogant. And lastly, they were double-minded. And I think this is kind of a summary of, of the entirety of the community, of what they were doing. Double-minded in the sense that they were, they were hypocrites. And 
oftentimes when we use this language of hypocrisy in our day, we, we mean it in the sense of you say one thing and do another, right? You, you say a certain thing and you do another, which is definitely a form of hypocrisy. But in the scriptures, hypocrisy is believing yourself to be close to God while actually being far from him. This is Jesus's criticism of the Pharisees, often calling them hypocrites. It wasn't, they were doing what they were saying. The Pharisees did keep the law that they prescribed. The, their hypocrisy was that they fancied themselves as being close to God. And Jesus was saying, no, you're actually, your hearts are far from him. That's the hypocrisy. That's the double-mindedness that you're, you think with, you believe, you truly believe with your mind one thing, but, but it is actually a different thing. That's the two-mindedness. And this is what's going on in the community, right? Uh, through these favoring of the rich, neglecting the poor, using violent, angry speech, fighting amongst themselves, being arrogant. All of those things are saying you are, you're not <laughs> as holy and as close to God as you think you are because of the way that you're living. And James is, is big on this. If you, you say these things, show me by your works that these things are true. So with this occasion and this community in mind, I think we can get a slightly different reading of this passage that hopefully will provide some clarity. If it doesn't, talk to Chad. So I think we want to read this passage as a way in which we can contribute and live in a community, especially a community that's undergoing persecution and suffering, a way, that, a way that we do that that is different from the way that the world wants us to do that. So let's start in the passage here with prayer and praise in suffering. In verse 13, James says, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Again, it's tempting here to say, Okay, are you suffering? Pray. Are you happy? Is things going good? Well, you should praise. And of course, we should do those things. But I think... What's actually happening here is that James is instructing us in ways in which we, undergoing suffering in the community, can serve as a way to encourage that community. It's not turning to the rich and the powerful to solve our problems. It's not fighting amongst one another, but it is praying as a public witness to God that we depend on him. It is singing in suffering. This word, is anyone cheerful, is a bit misleading because it makes you think like, ah, are you happy? Happy clappy. But that's not what it's conveying. In, in fact, Paul uses this word. It's only used a handful of other times. And, and one of the places that Paul uses it is in Acts as well, when they are about to be shipwrecked. The, the storm is coming. He knows that they're going to be shipwrecked. And, you know, he is assuming there's going to be a large loss of life prior to the Lord showing up and, and confirming to him that, that they will be saved. But before that, Paul gets up to, to the people on the ship and he says, take courage. That's the same word as cheerful. Okay, so it's not like, be happy guys, we're, we're going to be shipwrecked. It's a matter of taking up courage. So what I think this is conveying is that when we are undergoing suffering, those who are perhaps like down, at, uh, down for the count, they need to get up and publicly pray. And in fact, it's, it's the person who is suffering who is to pray. We normally think of it the other way around. We think if you're suffering, we will pray for you. But James is saying, no, if you are suffering, 
Stand up and pray. Let the whole community see that, that this is how we endure suffering as the people of God. And if you are full of courage, then sing. One of the coolest things that I get to do by being up here and singing most Sundays is I get to see all of you sing. And sometimes I get to see people who just close their eyes and they listen to everyone else sing. And I, I think that's such a profound ministry. Sometimes we may show up here and we're not full of courage and it's a struggle for us to sing. But you get to sing for your brother and sister as a way of saying, this is, we will praise God. I have the courage to praise God on your behalf today. I think this is what we see in Acts when Paul is in prison. They're in prison and it says they were praying and singing. Some of them were in prison and saying, I need to pray because I don't know if I can make it. And Paul was in, probably in prison saying like, shoot, third time's a charm. I don't care. I'm going to sing because that's what they needed at that moment to be encouraged. It's a way that we get to serve the community in the midst of suffering. Next is intercession for the weak. So this is, this is the, the passage, the one that causes all the problems, verses 14 through 18. He says, Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we were, and he prayed earnestly that there would be no rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Okay, <clears throat> so how do we understand this language of sick and save and heal in, the, in this passage? As I mentioned before, this language is vague. It can go either way. It can have a physical dimension or a spiritual dimension. Just by way of example, in the Gospels, um, it is used of physical healing often, but Paul is almost always spiritual. So uh, in the Gospels, when Jesus heals the woman who has the issue of blood, it says that she is healed, and it uses this same word used here for save. So it literally says she was saved. So again, clearly referring to a physical healing. In Corinthians, when Paul is talking to them about how they are taking, partaking of the Lord's Supper, they are doing it incorrectly. They are neglecting, again, the poor and the weak, and they are feasting on the food themselves and uh, getting drunk before all have had a chance to come and partake of the meal. And Paul calls out to them and he says, this is why some of you are weak and sick. The word for sick in James is the word weak in Paul. So a distinction between sickness and weakness. So again, the, the language is vague. You cannot use the language alone to understand this passage. And a lot of people make a, a big deal about the language and, and it's important. But for me, I just couldn't make sense of it because you could, you could go either way. You could find the ways to say, yes, it's, it's physical, and yes, it's spiritual. So for me, I have to look at the context. 
And I think this is where the example of Elijah can be so helpful for us in better understanding this text. So we have this story of Elijah, and it talks about how he prayed, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. He prayed again, and it rained, and the land produced fruits. This story is found in 1 Kings 17 and 18, which if you ever think the Bible is boring, go read 1 Kings 17 and 18. It is wild and awesome. I started reading it, and like 45 minutes later, I was still just reading, and I got totally lost. Um, it, is, it is an incredible story. Um, and what happens is that the people of Israel under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had become so wicked that God told Elijah that he was going to cause a, a drought throughout the land for three years, that there wouldn't even be dew on the grass in the morning. That's how severe the drought was going to be. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. And then Elijah prays seven times, and the, and the, the rain returns and, and, uh, and waters the ground. Now, for me, this was a strange story to tell by James as a proof point for healing a sick person. Especially because right in the middle, those three and a half years where it didn't rain, there are two stories about Elijah. One is Elijah on Mount Carmel, where he goes up against the prophets of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven to consume everything. And it's immediately after that that he prays for the rain to return. But prior to that, there's a story of Elijah visiting a widow's house. And the widow has a son, and the son is sick. And Elijah stretches out his hands and prays over him and raises him up. Now, James, come on. If you're going to say a prayer has the power to raise a sick person up, why didn't you use that example? <laughs> like, it's perfect. He goes to the house. He stretches his hands out over him. He actually lays on top of him. It's a little weird. He lays on top of him to raise him up. Like, that's the perfect example of how you, how, why we should pray for a sick person. But he doesn't use that. He uses this prayer for lack of rain. And the context there is that the lack of rain is to be understood as God's judgment due to the people's sin. And the rain returning is a sign of God's forgiveness. And it comes directly from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord provides the curses that come for breaking the covenant. And one of those curses is that he would cause it to not rain. God is trying to show the people of Israel that they have broken his covenant, and he is judging them for that. And he is providing this curse of judgment on them to show them that that judgment is coming. And I think with this understanding, with this context, it can help us to maybe reread this understanding of a sick person who needs to call the elders for healing. The best way that I can understand that is that this is referring to those who are struggling to maintain faithfulness to God or who perhaps have been unfaithful to God in the face of persecution and trials. Those are the ones who should call the elders to anoint and pray over them. To me, this helps make most sense of what the anointing is. There's a lot of debate over the anointing being medicinal or spiritual. And I think in this understanding, it's clear that it's not medicinal, it is spiritual. The oil is there to confirm the spirit upon that person, to remind them who they are, 
that they belong to Christ and to the Holy Spirit and to restore them to the community. Although it is the sick person who must call the elders, the focus here is clearly on the prayer and the one praying. It's the prayer of faith that is is working. And the effectiveness of the prayer is through the persistent and through the righteous character of the one who is praying. Now, I do think there obviously could be some physical aspects to this. Again, as Paul said in the Corinthians, they were weak and sick because of the sin that they had committed. And perhaps there is some physical ailment to you being unfaithful to God in times of persecution. Perhaps that weakness is, is physical, and that will lead to, to a physical healing. But I think what it is trying to confer is that if you are struggling to maintain faithfulness to God, the church is there to remind you, to encourage you, to fulfill you, to return to the community, and to be faithful to God, that you cannot do it by yourself. You are to call the church to you and say, I need your help. And if you have been unfaithful and there is sin, God is there to forgive you. James says that clearly. If there is sin, it will be forgiven you. And then that turns again immediately to the community. I, I don't think this is, this is meant to say restoring you to the community because then it, he immediately goes on and says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is how we can ensure that we are praying as righteous people, that our, our prayers become effective. We confess our sins to one another that they may be forgiven because it's the prayer of a righteous person that's powerful in its effect. That doesn't mean a perfect person. It means one who is committed to staying faithful to God, just like Elijah was. He, he stayed committed when all the other prophets had turned to Baal. And God worked through his prayer to restore the rain to the land, to restore the spirit of God to the, to the people that the Spirit may have its effect and produce the fruit. The confession of sin and prayer for one another is also a means for our own healing. Presumably, it saves us from becoming sick and weak, like the one who had to call the elders. It, 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 it prevents us from falling into the trap of being unfaithful in the light of persecution. Lastly, in verses 19 through 20, um, James turns to speaking words of life. And originally, Chad did not include these verses when he asked me to preach this passage. And I did struggle to see how these fit together. Uh, but it, it actually ended up being a huge key for me uh, as, as I saw this. I read this passage as a Christian who has wandered away from the truth by living the double-minded life. So it, it, James does says, brothers and sisters, if any among you strays. So I do see this as one who is, a, who is among us, who is a Christian, but has strayed from the truth, not necessarily in doctrine, but in the way that they live. Again, taking the, the context of James's entire letter of how the people were living a double-minded life. 
I think this is us calling back those who are tempted to stray into living a life under persecution that is not dependent upon God in this way of prayer and confession and forgiveness. And the key that kind of unlocked this for me was actually last week when we were in the book of Malachi. I was amazed as we were reading through the book of Malachi and and this came to light for me as I was studying this passage. If you remember in Malachi chapter 1, the priests are called out for being judged for their improper sacrifice. They were using sick and lame animals while they had good ones in their flocks to be presented for sacrifice. And God judges them. And he says he judges them so that he can show that his original covenant with Levi could continue. And he goes on to explain the aspects that are going to continue in Levi's covenant. And the expectation would be that it was bringing the best animals in, right? The ones who were pure and blameless and following all the, the right prescriptions for animal sacrifice. But that's not what he said. I don't know if you caught this. Probably not because you weren't thinking about this passage. But in, in Malachi 2 verses 5 and 7, this is what he says. My covenant with him, which is Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave these to him. It called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in all of my name. True instruction was found in his mouth. Nothing wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. From the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and the people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. This is what the covenant has been from the very beginning. That we should speak words of life and peace. That we should turn people from iniquity. This is what James is talking about in these last two chapters. Is that we are to live the life of a priest. For the community. We are to help. On our lips should be knowledge of God. Should be Um, instruction and turning people from iniquity. And this is why I think understanding the passage in this way can be important for us today. Because the question could be, well, okay, great. What, What does this really mean for us? And I do think that there is a growing sense and a growing fear of persecution in our context as Christians. And while undoubtedly that persecution is nowhere to the level of what James's people were, were experiencing, I think there is some truth to that. I do think that this will, fear will continue to grow as well. I think there is increasingly hostile pressure in our context for being a Christian. Now, we may not be killed for that or thrown in jail for that, but there can be real consequences and there can be real pressure to kind of shy away and hide that that part of our lives due to that pressure. And the question is, when that comes, as it comes, what is our response going to be? And I have a, a chart here that can kind of outline for us how they were doing it and how James calls us to do it in this passage. Do we do it by favoring the rich and the powerful or interceding for the weak? Do we use hateful speech or speak words of life? Do we arrogantly fight against, with one another, or do we confess and pray with one another? 
Are we double-minded or are we resolute in prayer and praise and suffering? I think that if you were to look at this list and maybe take a poll of the public of how do you perceive Christians, most of them would probably line up with the left-hand side. I think even within the past couple of years, we have seen that the Christian, at least in the public imagination, is one who tries to curry favor with the rich and the powerful, even if they're of questionable moral character. They're ones who will publicly rip apart their brothers and sisters and shout heresy over secondary issues. They're constantly fighting, willing to wage war on anything and everything. They claim to be true Christians, however, with their perfect doctrine, they neglect the fruits of the Spirit. What James is saying here is that prayer is a way of life. It's not just simply something that we do, but it's a way that we live. He's trying to change the focus on what happens to us as to what we are able to do for the community. It's, this is not just a verse you pull out when you're sick. This is a verse that you use to say, how can I be a prayer, a living prayer to my community? It changes us from reading this passively as reading it as a means of participation. It gives us a vocation, a way of life. And when we miss this, we will inevitably take up the vocation of the world around us. That's what was happening in the churches in James's day. They were thinking that we need to get the rich on our side, that we need to cut down our, our opponents with hateful speech and fight. Everything needs to be fight so we can show our superiority. But that's not what God has called us to as a means of vocation, as a means of living. One of my favorite theologians, Chris Green, he has this sentence, which is going to sound very pretentious, and I apologize, but uh, hopefully it can prompt us to think through this. He says, The human vocation is a toning intercession in radical solidarity. And I think what he means by that is, in some mysterious way, God has chosen us to participate with him in his work of salvation. It's not that we are saviors, but it is in a way that we partner with God in this work. Think about the things that James says in this passage. The prayer of faith saves the sick person and leads to their forgiveness of sins. That confession and prayer for one another leads to healing. And turning of a sinner back from the error of his ways saves his soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. Like, these are all things that Jesus does. And yet we, through prayer and confession and speaking words of life, participate in that. This is what God has always wanted. This is attested throughout Scripture. Abraham pleading for Sodom. Moses pleading for the Israelites. Elijah praying for rain. Habakkuk praying against his enemies. Jesus interceding for the world. Jesus intervened on our behalf, intercession, to reconcile us to God, atonement. And he did this by becoming one of us, so that everything that happens to him may happen now differently for us, solidarity. Or as Paul says it in Romans, we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus' life was not just a mechanism for our salvation. It is the life that he created us to live. There's a long tradition of reading James as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the life that God calls us to. I was reminded of the phrase that maybe you've heard that says Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread, which has some truth to it. But I think it actually minimizes the vocation that God has called us to. We are not simply beggars. We are sons of the living God, willing to live life with beggars, to proclaim to them that they need not be beggars anymore. Hebrews summarizes this perfectly in chapter 13. It says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside, bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. And don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. When pressure comes, when trials come, when temptation comes, when suffering comes, we are people who can do the simple things of praying and confessing and speaking words of life. And it doesn't sound extraordinary, but that's the kingdom of God. That's the way that we overcome suffering in the world, that we overcome sickness, that we overcome a double-minded life. That's how we stay close to God, through these simple means of prayer and confession, prayer and praise and suffering. I read a beautiful story as we turn to the Lord's table now that illustrates this. And I wanted to read it for us. And um, this happened in an Anglican church, so forgive some of the difference in language maybe from our, our uh, understandings. But um, this was a beautiful way that I saw the community in the uh, essence of the Lord's table uh, show this way that I think is so powerful in a way that we want to be perceived as living lives of prayer. Uh, this person says, A truly holy thing happened yesterday and I'm still processing everything. I'm not sure quite how to express this with words, but I want to share this with you. Last week, I visited one of the older women in our church. She's 95 years old, absolutely marvelous, and recently diagnosed with a very severe cancer. This woman is a beloved and founding member of our church. She's just the very best. A truly kind, devastatingly funny, and thoughtful person. She insisted that she would be in church on Sunday, which was yesterday. She wasn't looking well, so I assured her that no matter what happens, God is with her and will take things as they go. I made plans to visit her on Monday. Then yesterday at church, one of our wonderful members said she would take our dear friend communion. I said suddenly, I'll come too. Nearby, two other couples from the church overheard us, and they said they'd join. One of our brilliant teenagers was there too and said he would come along. So after coffee hour, the group of us headed over to visit our friend in hospice where she was being cared for. We arrived to find a generally unresponsive, breathing shallowly with a slight rattle on her pillow. 
The nurse told me she imagined that our friend would die in the next 24 to 48 hours. So we made plans to stay the night. Our friend was shifting a bit. Her shoulders shook when she made a joke. She knew we were there. We arranged ourselves in a circle and made a small table out of a folding chair and celebrated communion on the chair with our friends. Ah, I said, you were right. You did make it to church on Sunday. She couldn't eat, so I dipped my little finger into the cup of wine and dropped the blood of Christ on her lips and her tongue. We finished the prayers, and, and I said a dismissal. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We sat for a moment in silence, and we stood up. And then she died. Her breath stilled. The rattle quieted. The nurses hurried over to check her pulse and check the time. Our friend had died just after receiving communion, the blood of Christ still on her lips. Never has anyone ever taken a dismissal, go in peace to love and serve the Lord so marvelously. We all cried and laughed and hugged. It was like the room was alive with something grand and still. We couldn't leave for another hour. We just stood there hugging each other. I have seen death before so many times, but never quite like this, never with such precise and miraculous and even comical timing. What grace, what beauty, what peace, what a perfect end to a vibrant, faithful life. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Let us turn to the table now.